Hey, how are you, Terry, and everyone out there listening? Hey, uh, well, we're really interested to hear what you're doing with uh, with the program you've got started. The Occupy people have found out the hard way that we've kind of got to cover our own news because the, the mainline media pretty much has had us blacked out at the times when we really should have been getting our story out. Um, we're hoping you can tell us what you've got going, and then... Uh, would really be nice to have an Emmy Award-winning journalist give us some pointers on what you think good citizen journalism, what makes that up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me start out by talking a little bit about the project we're launching. Um, you know, this is called the Truth in Media Project. Uh, and as you pointed out, I think a lot of folks uh, associated with the Occupy movement understand a need for that because... I think there was so much within the Occupy movement that it was justified anger and frustration uh, with kind of the police state that's evolving in the United States, the the crony capitalism that we witness all the time uh, out of Washington. And I, and I think there's just a, a level of frustration um, that needs to be there. And so what we have done is, is started this project because we don't believe that uh, a lot of the media is being truthful or accurate in covering what's happening in the country, that there's too much collusion between media and government, and so how do you overcome that? And uh, that's really what this project is about. Great. Um, what kind of uh, – have you, you've started some of the shows, and I'm a little confused here. You've got some of the shows that are already running, and it's in the YouTube format, correct? That's right. What we want to do is uh, the, the episodes that we're creating are five- to six-minute-long digital cinema episodes – that we are wanting to place on streaming sites and uh, throughout the country uh, in a variety of ways. And so the idea, we've done two of them. They were kind of uh, like a scaled-down version just to start it off to give people an idea of what we're talking about, what they will look like, what the context of the of the, uh, the format is. And so one of them's on the NSA. The other one is on uh, Syria and al-Qaeda. But we really wanted to get this information out you know, to the public, let people see uh, what we're doing and kind of what it looks like. And so we've started with that process, and, um, you know, so far the response has been very good to it. Because, again, we're going to talk about things that the rest of the media is not going to talk about, but we want to do it in a way that is professional and um, certainly that that comes across in a very mainstream way. What uh, What's your... If you've had a couple of the episodes up, uh, can you give us just a little taste of one, and probably we'll run a link on it. Uh, sure. Bottom of the page. Absolutely. What we've done with um, uh, one of them was talking about uh, the NSA, for instance, and all the questions the media is asking about the case uh, of the prison program really isn't the important part of the story. So there's been all this discussion of someone like Edward Snowden and who he is and who his girlfriend is and, you know, what Edward Snowden is like and is he a good person. All these questions about Snowden, though, are just distractions from the real issue. The real issue isn't Edward Snowden. The real issue is the NSA and is what the NSA has been doing and continues to do criminal. Um you know, those are not opinions. Those, those are facts. Facts support whether it's criminal or not. Now, we can argue about the Constitution, and we talk about some of those issues, but even more so than that, even what the NSA says gives them authority under the FISA and Patriot Acts, we demonstrate in this video how even under those acts, what they're doing is illegal and criminal. And so it's important for people to understand that there's a lot of this kind of super, superlative discussion that takes place in media about all these other issues that are really not important and then you have some very, very important issues, like as we're talking about what the NSA is doing, spying on Americans, and breaking American law in order to do so. And those issues, you know, get turned into opinions. And so facts become opinions, and opinions become facts. It's all very convoluted. So you can go over to the website, benswam.com. It's Swam with two ends. You can watch that video there, and it gives you an idea of how, how we kind of break it all down. We have a very interesting process for how we, we go about doing that. Great. Uh, what we'd uh, I guess uh, if you could, while you're on that particular episode, you were involved in the production, I'm sure. And what we'd like to do in this hour is try to give our own citizen journalists uh, the benefit of your experience, two Emmy Awards. It would be great to hear what you consider good news, what good news gathering. Uh, was there anything in that story that would be a good uh, for instance, for people that are just getting started in citizen journalism. Sure. Well, a couple things. Um, 
you know, one thing that folks who are getting involved, and you said citizen journalism, and and uh, that's a term that I'm I'm not entirely comfortable with, only because I think it it takes away credibility from people who are journalists. Um, because I think anybody can be a journalist. I don't think journalism. I know there's a, a you know a paid profession that goes along with it, but unfortunately, a lot of what we refer to as journalists today are not journalists; they're broadcasters. And there's a difference between being a professional broadcaster and a professional journalist. Having said that, I think a lot of the citizen journalists who are out there, there are some basic things that you can do um, that allow you to perform um, some quality journalism, um, but you have to cut through some of what you've seen out there already. So, for instance, as I was mentioning about the facts and opinions issue, that's one thing that I would say anybody who's out there who wants to be involved and you say, I, I, wanted, I want to report on things and I want to provide, you know, journalism of my own, the first thing you have to do is really check yourself and say, okay, so how do I prevent the facts of a story from sounding like opinions? How do I prevent the opinions of a story from sounding like facts? <laughs> it's, that's the harder part, right? The yeah. harder part is making sure that you're not taking your opinion, whatever it might be on an issue, and trying to frame around that opinion the facts of whatever the case are. And so one way you do that is to source every single thing that you find along the way. You know, story stuff like the, what the NSA was doing, I mean, that there's a lot of opinion that's being put out there, but there are some very basic documents like the Patriot Act, uh, basic documents like uh, the FISA Act, the provisions within those acts that lawmakers in the NSA keep saying give the federal government the authority to spy on Americans. Well, go back and read those. Don't don't go look for cliff notes of them. Go back and read those provisions and see whether that is true or not. Go back and read the Bill of Rights and see whether or not this stuff is, violates um, basic due process amendments. And then base your research, your writing, your, your conclusion, not on how you feel about the NSA and not on how you feel about Verizon and how you feel about your private information being read because that's what everyone's doing. They're all talking about how they feel and instead base it on, on the standards that we have in this country of rule of law, especially when it comes to constitutional rights. If, uh, if Tom Paine was alive right now, I'm wondering whether he would have been defined as a citizen journalist uh, because he was definitely opposed to the powers that be of his time. Um, there are certain protections you're supposed to get as a journalist, although those have been eroded. Um, is there a better term to you than citizen journalist? I would say independent journalist. Okay, a, I like that. Term. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, okay, as a as an independent journalist, uh, what you're not going to have? You, I guess what I'm asking about is shield law applies for for. Uh, quote-unquote, real journalists. Um, right. I don't know that that's going to apply for us as independents. What's your thought on that? I think that um, it, it probably would not in the beginning, but not because it shouldn't, but because there is a concerted effort that's underway, and it's been underway for a few years now, to eliminate independent journalists. Um, there are lawmakers who have talked about the fact that we need to clearly define who a real journalist is because there are too many of these independent journalists popping up. And that's a very, very dangerous um, category, I think, to start putting people into because you made a point right now about Thomas Paine, but uh, what a lot of your listeners may or may not know is that 11 years uh, before the American Revolution began, there was a group of guys called the Loyal Nine who started protesting um, the British monarchy. And what they really came, you know, kind of started to appear because of was the Stamp Act. All right. And, and the Stamp Act, which was ratified and created by the British Parliament, was designed to say every single person living in the American colonies has to pay a special taxes on anything that's printed, any, uh, any uh, documents, newspapers, magazines, anything that's printed. It has to be special paper from London and it has to have a special seal that you pay a, a stamp tax for in order to have this paper being circulated in the colonies. Now, what some people have heard that story before, and certainly in, in your history classes in school, you heard about the Stamp Act. 
Right. The part of the story they haven't told you, though, is why this was so upsetting to these nine guys, who then, over the course of a very short amount of time, became what was known as the Sons of Liberty. It was several thousand people in this group. The reason the Sons of Liberty were protesting was not because they all had this, you know, particular bend against, um, you know, the Stamp Act itself, just just because they didn't like the taxation of it, but because they recognized that it was an attempt by the British Crown and the, and the British Parliament to control information in the colonies. Because most of these guys in the Loyal Nine, and then eventually in the Sons of Liberty, were drawn together because they were all independent journalists. They owned newspapers. They owned independent magazines. They would write you know, their own independent newsletters. And so they had created – they didn't work together, but they were all independent. They were their own alternative media at the time. And they were the counter-voice to the newspapers in the colonies that were controlled by British influence. And so uh, this, this idea of the Stamp Act wasn't about, hey, the British Parliament really just wants to you know, make more money on the backs of hardworking uh, folks living in the colonies. It was, we need to control the information. And so where the Sons of Liberty found themselves successful was that by the time the – Stamp Act was ratified by the British Parliament, they had literally uh, thousands of different little newspapers all throughout the colonies and, and individuals working on their own who refused to obey the Stamp Act and continue to put this information out and were able to sway the public over the next 11 years that the revolution had to happen. But 11 years prior to the revolution, if they had all complied, there probably would not have been an American Revolution. That's, that's really a fascinating point. I never really, I, I should have known that, but I'd never really thought about the Stamp Act actually was to control, control the media at that time. That's amazing. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Back, back to the, uh, the sources, because we don't have a shield law as an independent journalist. Right. It's probably going to be much, much, much more difficult for us to try to protect our sources, although I'm not even sure for the quote-unquote real media but because of the technology changes and what's been released as far as the eavesdropping by NSA. Uh, in fact, I'm reading between the lines. If I was a guessing man, I would bet that, that Mr. Hastings was more worried about his sources than anything else as he as he made his move, and hopefully somewhere down the line we get a real investigation and find out what that was all about. Mm -hmm. How do we protect our sources now? You can't talk to them on phone. Uh, you can't. You can't. Um, one of the things I would say is if you have if you have a source, and obviously it's a little bit different situation. So if, if I, as a journalist uh, working in you know whether it be broadcast media or national media, you might have someone reach out to you who's a whistleblower or an insider. Because they've seen your work or they know your name and they say, hey, you know, I trust this person. Right. As an independent journalist, that's a little bit harder to get uh, because obviously people don't necessarily know you. The way your sources would then come to you is um, perhaps you have a family member who's connected to somebody uh, who wants to talk about what's going on. Uh, maybe it's someone that you have run into, you know, through some event and they've encountered you and say, I want to get this information out. What I would recommend in that case is that as, as the individual connected to this person, that you yourself do not act as the journalist on this story, that you network together so that there is someone else who does not know this person and you communicate to them, uh, this is the information, uh, this is uh, someone who is going to want to get in touch with you. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to say anything about it. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do anything other than let you know that this is someone who will contact you. And what I would recommend to you is that you never have that source pick up the phone and call. You never have that source um, do anything electronically. I honestly believe the best way to pass that information is to have that person get a typewriter from a pawn shop <laughs> and type out what they want to say, put it in an unmarked envelope, and send it to you in the mail – so that when you open it up as the journalist, you honestly don't know where it came from. And that's over the threshold for, for real journalists, and that was one of the things that, in, that you invoke with Shield Law, correct? That's right. Uh, that's right. And remember this, too. If, if 
you as the, as the journalist who's broken the story, and obviously you're asking for, for facts, you're asking for them to cooperate their story because you're going to have to research it since you don't know this person. You're going to have to research the story. Um, if you are ever confronted about it by government and they say, where did this come from? The answer could be as simple as, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and if a judge orders you to, you have to hand over what you know, you're handing them a typewritten letter that says, here's information. But I don't know who, who it came from. And, and so probably, it you. probably have to get rid of the carbon ribbon if we're going to go back to the old black and white movies here so that they can't figure out what was typed off the ribbon. And Do you sometimes get the impression we're living in a bad film noir, uh, black and white flick about Nazi Germany? I mean, this is like trying to practice journalism uh, like we were trying to write The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich or something. I mean, if you read back to some of the journalists that were trying to operate over there, we're talking about the same kind of issues here. and It's kind of scary. Yeah, Even for is. a person out of Occupy, we've reached another line here. Uh, it, it's, uh, we really need trained journalists, so that's why I'm really glad we're, we're getting this put together. I've got about... Uh, 44 minutes left here. <laughs> so what we'd like to do is have you give us a mini seminar here, and I'm going to go over, I believe it's University of Missouri, and I'll have a link on the page so people can see the actual hard copy. Uh, they had ten things, the top ten things that you need to be for journalism school. So here we go. Are you ready, Mr. Swan? Okay, sounds good. Let's do Number it. one, accuracy. Uh, and they delineated accuracy in facts and also accuracy in context. We don't do the innuendo. Uh, can, have you got what, what's your reaction to, to their choice for number one? I, I think that's very important. Accuracy, but accuracy means a, a couple of things. It means number one that you want clearly, as they said, for the facts of whatever you're talking about to be correct, but also to speak about these issues. Uh, incorrect context. You know, one thing that's so amazing to me is that we have people who are writing for magazines and online publications all over the country right now um, who put out such poor information, and they do so in a way with no regard whatsoever uh, for accuracy or for honesty. And, and, it's, and it's really stunning to me to watch I call it a smear machine, the smear machine that's out there, that anything that comes along that, that stands up against corporate powers, that stands up against, uh, you know, kind of law enforcement, uh, on whatever level it is, certain policing for profit or this idea that you cannot challenge official narratives to think, to stories. You mentioned Michael Hastings' story. You know, anybody who talks about Michael Hastings will soon be referred to as a Hastings truther because they would love to use this word truther now uh which is kind of it's almost uh, you know a strange term to use because every journalist should be a truther you should be seeking truth in whatever you're doing and yet uh this idea is a smear that you are a truther because you are somehow you know caught up in these strange conspiracies um it's just it's fascinating to me how it happens so yeah it's, it's got to be accuracy in terms of what you're talking about, but also the context, and doing so honestly, not allowing, again, your opinion to, to, to allow kind of snide terminology to creep in. Uh, they're going to elaborate on that a little bit further, a little further down the, the top ten list. Um, I think that's a good place to move to. Number two, avoid bias. Uh, you should be clear. Um, the, the reporter should be clear where he's coming from. If he is advocating, he should be clear why he is advocating. And they are quite clear in journalism school uh, that, that there are places where you are allowed to advocate. You do not advocate crime. Uh, you do. Uh, and, and again, can you kind of take off on that? I, I know I'm hitting you with a fire hose here. but No, um, I mean, this, this issue has actually come up quite a bit lately. So what is advocacy? I guess, is, is part of the question. So how do you define it? You know, in, in my case, some people say that there's advocacy involved in it because we stand up so much for rule of law and the Constitution uh, and believing that the entire 
breadth and width of the Constitution should be applied to all citizens and, and really to all people. If we believe that the truths, as the founder said, are self-evident, that all men are created equal, that doesn't just mean men and women who are of American descent. It's all people. Um, and so advocacy to me is not necessarily saying we're going to hold lawmakers accountable and we're going to hold people accountable. Some people do view that as advocacy. They say, no, you're, you're an advocate for the Constitution or for the people. Um, so I, I think it's a little bit difficult. Certainly it says never advocate that people break the law, but I'm not sure that's necessarily true too. You know, throughout our American history, civil disobedience has been an important part of our history. Good point. And, and for the, you know, a journalist to never stand up and say, you know what, um, what's happening here against the people may be a crime and therefore civil disobedience may be necessary to rectify whatever's taking place. And if that's the case, um, why wouldn't a journalist speak for truth as opposed to, well, you know, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And that's where I, I have a problem with some of these very um, defined lines of, of good and bad. And definitely a value judgment. Uh, we, what we're, but, but what's really fascinating is to get your viewpoint on it. Obviously, with a couple of Emmys behind you, you got something going right, and you've got a lot of people watching. And that really is what this is all about in communications. It doesn't do any good to just put it out there. It's also got to be seen. Um, it's kind of off point for number three on the hit parade, uh, multiple viewpoints. They're saying you want to get more than one source. Uh, three to four sources for a primary story, two to three sources for a secondary story. And if you could, ha you have been through J school, haven't you? You know what? I did not go to journalism school. I didn't I either. Actually, yeah, <laughs> I, I did was, not. I started on the OBIT uh, desk, so I just kind of got the uh, training in progress. But I was wondering, have you bumped into those terms, primary and secondary stories, that you could kind of clarify where it looks like they're talking about? Well, they, they, they're probably using terms that are more um, newspaper terms. That what we refer right. to them uh, in, in television broadcasts uh, are – um, either nuts and bolts or lead stories versus what are called sidebar stories. Right. Okay, um, that, was, that was the newspaper side, so I got you there. Okay, and so the, the idea here is obviously, uh, you know, a primary story or a lead story is y your big story that brings in all these elements, kind of lays the groundwork for um, whatever you're talking about. So on any given day, you're going to have some, you know, big story, obviously in hopes, um, that's going to kind of fill up the larger part of a newscast. And then from that, you're going to take certain elements of it that are different angles, and those become sidebar stories. And so gotcha. you've got, you know, um, for instance, let's say there is a 9-11 uh, happens. Obviously, it's a huge example. Um, but 9-11 happens. So the, the primary or the lead story is the nuts and bolts of what happened, what happened today, what took place. Why did it happen? Who was involved? And then the sidebar stories become stories about survivors or stories about heroes or stories about people who um, intervened in some way or stories about the person who was supposed to have gone to work that day and didn't. And so I'm sure as I'm saying this, listeners are saying, okay, I understand. I've seen all that happen before. Um, so, yeah, I think you obviously have to have uh, sources for everything that you do, and every bit of information should be sourced. However, something else that's important here is don't fall into the trap that says every story is a left-right story. And so there's, for instance, creating this faux sense of balance that we have in news today, which I don't agree with, is the idea that a story is balanced because you get someone from one side and then you get someone from another side and together those guys create balance. It doesn't create balance, especially if those people don't know what they're talking about. Um, it, it's kind of a this illusion of balance that takes place. And certainly when everything is structured as being on the left and on the right, it makes it more difficult. So uh, many stories have many sides to them and many different angles to them. Um, but, you know, human interest stories are not covered the same way that a hard news story is. And certainly not covered the same way as um, a constitutional rights story is covered. So it's a very broad, that's a, that, that kind of piece of advice there um, that the that report is giving you, it's kind of broad advice for 
um, an industry that has a lot of different caveats to it. Uh, there's uh, there's also a tie-in back to their number one accuracy too. Uh, basically, in the old days, if you had it, if you got a lead and you could confirm the lead, then the safest in your duty was to run it. Um, has that changed? And that that also would kind of fit with what people like in the news, Snowden. Um, that in the old days, the safest thing you could do was publish all of it. Don't dribble it out like that. That's an invitation right. to get whacked. Uh, right. For independent journalists, this is even more important. Nobody's watching us in real time. Um, any advice there? Well, and I it, think, yeah, I think what you said is true. Um, putting that information out there in kind of one, one uh, blast is probably better. Uh, in the Snowden case, what, what Greenwald did and the UK Guardian did was they put that information out, uh, basically everything they had in the beginning, and then they have followed up reporting on the story. But they had, one thing they didn't do is they didn't show up and say, try to tease you and say, you know, coming up on Monday, <laughs> I'm going to give you, you know, this insider look into a little bit of information, and then on Tuesday, we're going to have this, and on Wednesday, because, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you want to get your, your information taken away or shut down before it gets out, try to tantalize people with it. That's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that telegraph that punch. That's a good idea. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, that brings us to number four, pursue the truth. Uh, their points were uh, best, uh, best obtainable truth, the quote by Carl Bernstein. Um, and then the second point they wanted to raise was uh, – was what you just said, that not every issue has equivalent sides. You really have troubles finding a fair and balanced both sides represented when one side clearly doesn't have much of a case. Um, could you go into a little more detail on those two points? Sure. Uh, but again, best obtainable I, truth for a start. They, they basically, they're saying, well, we're not historians and we're not cops. We can't make them talk and we don't have the benefit of opening up the archives 20 years later. Uh, so I guess that was right. first. Best no, I, I think to some to some extent, you know, uh, a journalist should try to be a historian. Uh, you should try to know as much about whatever subject you're talking about. In terms of broadcast industry, I mean, it's so broad. Uh, and we talk about we spend most of our days chasing house fires and car crashes. And so it, that, that doesn't really require much uh, historical knowledge. But there are a lot of stories out there that you should be educated on. And you should educate yourself on. So if you're going to talk about, for instance, the economy and you don't understand uh, the idea of a central bank, if you don't understand Austrian economics, if you don't understand Keynesian economics, um, other than a kind of a headline view of it, then I'm not sure you should be talking about it anyway. Because <laughs> you're, just, you're contributing to the, to the lack of understanding of the subject. You're, you're perpetuating, perpetuating myths is really what you're doing. Um, and that's what we see happening all the time in media, is so many folks who are not talking about these things on a, a um, you know, real honest level, because not because they're bad or, or nefarious, but because they just don't have an understanding of them themselves. And that's part of the problem, again, of that, that faux balance of this left-right paradigm that says, well, one side is on the left and one side is on the right, and so everything is viewed through these, these lenses of balancing between these two ideas. And it's just not true. I mean, if you want to balance news, then you balance uh, the many different sides to an issue. Uh, you, you, you share ideas from a variety of different places because there's always more than two. Um, and, you, and you do so in a way that I think is intellectually honest um, in order to, to further the discussion, not the whole CNN, let's leave it there thing, where you, you allow two sides to fight with each other. And then you say at the end, like the referee, let's ring the bell and let's leave it there. That just doesn't work. Makes for a good fist fight, though. <laughs> well, Ratings that's what it's all awesome. become. That's what it's become. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I guess that brings us to number five. Technical, factual. No, oh, sorry, can't read my handwriting, which is another journalism thing. Factual data as opposed to people skills. Uh, they were saying both skills are necessary. The ability to take, especially now with the age of computer. You can find patterns in big piles of numbers. Uh, you can wade through the entire uh, Patriot Act, like you were saying. That's factual data. 
then I guess what they're also saying is the other side of that is people skills. That once you have read through that and kind of got an understanding, no journalist is really expected to know everything, unless maybe we resurrect Walter Cronkite. Uh, but the uh, the people skills, find the people who can tell you what you need to know. Right. Uh, what do you think there? Well, I think that's very important because no one knows everything. Um, but I think what you can do is you can find, as you said, intelligent people. Uh, who can come in and discuss it, discuss these things. And again, don't, don't necessarily go out and look for the person who's going to further validate your own worldview. Um, because again, one of the problems that we run into is this idea, people go to media these days not because they want to be educated. I really believe this. But because they want media to validate the worldview they already hold and the values they already hold. And so they're really looking for validation as opposed to information. So what I would say is, is a lot of journalists do the same thing, that when they look for an expert or they look for a point of view or they look for an idea, they look for someone who holds their values and their worldview, and then that becomes the expert who can talk to these issues. And again, honest journalism says, you know, you seek out multiple voices and you, and you, you know, give even the person who you don't agree with what they're saying, you at least give them the opportunity to share their, their understanding or uh, input on, on whatever that subject might be. And that, uh, that's why you often would hear uh, somebody in a, in a journalism story at the end of it say, and, and company spokesmen were unavailable for comment. Is that yes. basically what's going on there? Yeah, well, it's because they're supposed to balance it by getting that side of it. And you give this person their side. But, but again, uh, a company spokesman is rarely going, I mean, you obviously you want to give, uh, if you're talking about a company, you want to give that spokesman a say, but, but understand that is the many times the least honest part of the story. Right. If you're doing a, a story about a company that's wronging people and then you go to a spokesperson, do you really expect them to provide you good information? And that's, again, that becomes part of the faux balance. Oh, we're balanced because we gave them their say without ever, maybe in many cases, not even going back to fact check whether or not what they said was true at all. Uh, I guess we'll go ahead to number six. Uh, communities, community ties, connect the dots. And I guess they're basically saying you just never really know where the next lead is going to come from. Could be the person who's cutting your hair. Could be... That's right. Sitting at McDonald's and doing a live radio broadcast and overhear somebody from the table next to you. Uh, that would be the, uh, the get out there in the community. And then the other side of it is connect the dots. Once you've done that, well, then now start putting the pieces together. Yes. Do the legwork. Um, what, what can you uh, guide our, our beginning journalists off with that one? Well, I, I, I kind of mentioned this a little bit ago, but I absolutely believe that that is the case. Look, um, you, you don't know where the information is going to come from. Some of the very best stories out there will come from someone with insider knowledge uh, because this is a field they've worked in. Keep in mind what's interesting about the Snowden thing. People will say, well, you know, how did how did they finally get this guy? And what took it to, so long for this guy to come forward? I mean, he's he's this one guy, and I guess he was, you know, uh, like had all this information no one else had. If you really look at the NSA case, there are four million, four million people connected to uh, government contractors and government agencies who have some part of access to PRISM. And I saw a report that was done on this, and they were talking about all the different people associated with it in some way who could have released this information on some level. Four million people. That's an incredible number of people who had some uh, level of understanding. Sounds like a possible security problem on their part. So, yeah, I I think it's amazing that that they're surprised (laughs) that it took so long for it to get out. you got four million people who know about this. So you (laughs) never know, as as an independent journalist, um, how one of those people might be connected to you. As you said, that person, you know, maybe someone, you're at a, a birthday party and, you know, there's a conversation going on, and you hear someone talking about this program that's being done, and, and they work for Verizon, and they can't say much about it, but they just know that everybody out there who's on their Verizon phones, they're listening to your phone calls, and you say, oh, what's that about? And you start getting information on it. You never know. And so there's, um, I would say, always have your ears open, you know, to what people are talking about. 
and and certainly don't make the mistake of thinking that because somebody does not wear an official badge or carry around an official press kit that they are not someone who should be listened to. And that's one of the mistakes we, we fall into in, in broadcast journalism all the time is that if someone you know can issue a press release, we give them way, way more authority than we probably should. Um, so uh, you know you, you, you really want to keep your ears open and listen to what people have to say. And you know obviously there's a lot of legwork involved in doing that because you've got to dig up stories from the ground up, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, uh, n- number seven, uh, open and transparent, that people check accuracy. And, again, this is uh, journalism school, and I think it comes as a, they're basically talking about us. We are the ones. <laughs> you you got a couple of Emmys for fact check, reality check. Uh, this seems to be kind of news to them, and it sounds like they're trying to adapt the newer generation to, well, uh, better be prepared for, they are going to check what you're saying. Uh, do you see that as being a positive change, or is that something that as independent journalists we need to keep pushing at? No, I, I think that as an independent journalist, you need to understand something, that you're going to be under twice the criticism and twice the microscope of professional counterparts, that you're going to be viewed as someone who is not credible, and someone who is just playing journalist, and that should be left up to the real journalists. So you need to make sure that you, you know, cross every T, dot every I, make sure that your facts are correct, make sure you're transparent, and if you are wrong about something you put out, if you, you put out information that, that um, is later proven to be incorrect, or maybe you missed something because, yes, people miss things, uh, then you just need to be transparent about it and say, you know what, here's where I was wrong. And if you find out before everyone else does, then you need to out yourself. You need to come out and say, listen, I was wrong here, and, and this is what was incorrect, and, you know, I've altered it or changed it or removed it. Um, I would, in many, if you're doing print independent journalism, um, you know, do the strike through where you leave the original text there That's and then correct it. So that people can see you're not trying to hide where you were wrong, but that you're you're upfront about it. And and by the way, we hate to do that. Everyone hates to do that. <laughs> you know, I hate to do it, but I've done it many times. I I have a segment you know called Reality Check, as you mentioned, that I used to do at the Fox station in Cincinnati. But I had another one called Reply All, where if people would come to me and say, "Hey, you're wrong about this," I come back and do a piece about why I was wrong. Um, and I have no, no problem doing that because it, it gives you so much more credibility moving forward to accept that you were wrong back there. What do you see as the payoff to being what journalists used to be supposed to have, those professional ethics? And that didn't used to be something that was supposed to be just a few. I mean, that was just kind of one of the basics of being a journalist back in the day. Uh, what's the payoff to that? What, when somebody knows that basically you're going to give a straight shot, is that helping you out on your next story? Oh, absolutely. Listen, people are very cynical these days, as you know, and they're always ready to you know, come after you if, if you're saying something that's untrue. Uh, but what people want to believe is not that you're perfect. They want to believe that you're honest. They don't want to believe that you're that you're flawless. They want to believe that you have integrity. And so, if you will demonstrate integrity by by as I said, being transparent, admit when you're wrong, uh, apologize if you you know didn't do your due diligence, and learn from it, because that's also part of the process, right? Every time that you've done something where you say, "Oh man, I, I screwed that up because I should have double checked this or I should have checked here," you know, just come out. Say you were wrong, you know, admit where it was incorrect, um, and then apply new tactics or principles as you move forward into how you can, um, you know, move forward in the future. And I, and I think people are much more forgiving than we give them credit for. Um, where you're going to run into problems, though, is if you are not honest and other media find out about it, they'll <laughs> use that to crucify you if they don't like you. Uh, where would, uh, if, in a theoretical case like Dan Rather's last, one of his last stories, uh, where he was with the Bush and the uh, military record, 
uh, how would you have recommended if you were standing there telling Dan, hey, Dan, um, how would you have recommended he handle that story? Because basically it looks like he was targeted with a false story, and we're seeing a lot of active defense in Occupy by putting in uh, agent provocateurs. Uh, when you see a guy in a pair of black shoes throwing a trash can that doesn't seem to be the same kind of trash can on the street, possibility that that's not really an Occupy protester, but that's who got the blame for the riots the very first thing after the morning. We've had a lot of trouble with agent provocateurs causing a problem to smear the to smear the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. So how do you get back? How would you recommend dealing with that? Well, I, and I would have told Dan, look, when when the story um, started to come unraveled, should have come out and said I was wrong. Should have come out and said this is the information that I was given. Here's the process for it, and 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 been very transparent. Maybe even said, look. On this night, like Monday night, we're going to lay out for you exactly how it works. Here's the process. Here's every single person involved up to me. This is the due diligence I should have done. This is what didn't happen. You know, just lay it out for people and apologize to them. You may still end up losing your job over it because obviously <laughs> things are so politicized. Right. You know, it, it, we live in that kind of a, a time. And, and quite frankly, you know, Dan Rather had not had solid ratings for a very long time. So CBS may have looked at him and said, this is an opportunity for us as well. Uh, you know. All those nasty retirement benefits. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you can always get rid of him and you can bring in your superstar Katie Kirk. Oh, yeah, that didn't work out very well. But. So, but, but, you, but for his own sake, I think to be able to say this is the story. Now, maybe Dan says, look, you know what? To this day, I still stand by the story. I think we should have done it. It was the right thing to do. And that's okay, too. Um if, if you if you feel that about whatever you're putting out there, that's okay as long as you can say, look, I have done my part, I've done my diligence, and and I stand by what I'm doing. Where's your uh, Where's the balance point here again with the Dan Rather as a as a case point? Uh, you're, we're always supposed to protect our sources, but suppose you figure out that source just harpooned you, and probably on purpose. Do you still protect them, or do you bring that out as now? Here's how I came to this erroneous information. How do you deal with that situation? I think it, I think what it depends on is is what the consequence for the source is. If the source is if you're outing your source to throw them under the bus to get out of trouble, <laughs> that's a problem. But if you if if you feel like your source harpooned you and you realize that by by naming them and having them be accountable for the information they gave you uh, does not necessarily put them in like a for instance, they weren't a whistleblower. They're not releasing stuff that's necessarily uh, going to land them in jail. Then I don't have a problem with it if you really believe that's the case. But again, that's a that's a issue of personal integrity. Do you are you really doing it because they are pundu, or are you doing it because you know you think if you grab onto that struggling person, you can hold your head above water? And again, you've been doing this for years. I, I know this is probably like so basic to you that you don't even think about it, but it's a constant balancing act between point number one and point number eight and point number four and point number six. And how do you deal with those? What's your, how do you keep your balance? What's your advice to people that are just getting started to keep their balance? Well, I think for me personally, keeping my balance is about uh, not going into any story uh, with a preconceived notion of the outcome. And always using, as I mentioned, always using the rights of people, not of government, not of law enforcement, not of uh, corporations, but the rights of people as individuals um, as kind of the standard of whatever I'm doing. And so I'm not on a crusade necessarily um, in the stuff that I'm working on, but I absolutely believe that, that media has the ability right now to change America and to change the course that we're headed down. Uh, by restoring power to people and to the individual. And so for me, the balance is always, am I speaking honestly um, to those issues and also speaking honestly to the fact that I was not the one who decided what the oath of office in this country would be. I did not decide what the words of the Constitution would be. I did not decide that judges, presidents, members of Congress, members of military, police officers, city councils and mayors would all swear an oath of office to the Constitution to uphold and protect it. I didn't decide that. But because that has been decided, if I am always striving to hold people in power accountable 
um, to the oath of office, then I think I'm pretty balanced. We've got about 15 minutes left. This is absolutely fascinating, and right now I've got to start begging for you to come back and give us another shot at this someday up the line here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got uh, we've worked our way to number eight, evoke emotion, and I really like this one. Um, it's one thing to throw a bunch of facts, numbers. How do you get your heart in it? How do you get the, the person you're trying to communicate's heart? What's your trick? An Emmy or two? You seem to have the handle on it. What's your well? Advice? I think that that one can be a little bit of a trap because again, you want you want people to feel something, okay? Right. But but when a lot of us here to evoke emotion, we're thinking that's a positive thing. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I want people to feel something when they're done watching whatever I've talked about. Now, if that is a negative emotion, if that is anger, if that's frustration, if that's a, you know, forget this guy, who, who's he to tell us this, uh, that's okay. I want people to feel something because I know it's challenging uh, whatever kind of status quo they hold in their life. Um, but don't make the mistake of trying to evoke emotion in order to win the argument. Speak to issues that are honest. Speak to issues that are truthful and that mean something to you hmm. um, and, and pursue those stories. And many times they'll mean something to someone else. But, but don't try to control what they mean to someone else. They, they might, as I said, that might evoke uh, sadness. It might evoke anger. It might evoke joy. It might evoke, um, you know, someone who says, I love what you're doing. Someone else who says, I hate what you're doing. I would rather people hate me then feel nothing about me. Because if they feel nothing about me at all, then it means that I'm not challenging anything out there. Uh, how about uh, Ernie Pyle? He basically was was presenting facts, uh, but he had the personal touch. Do you think that was a balance in trying to, to put facts and emotion together? Or what's it's your feeling about Ernie? I, I think it's very difficult. Look, when you, try to put, when you try to put facts and emotion together, many times you're trying to skew what the emotion is, as I was talking about. So, you know, when you talk about uh, someone, we, we do these all the time. They're called human interest stories. Right. And so a human interest story, you know, you don't just say the economy's bad right now. You say the economy's bad right now. And let's go find a family that's struggling to put food on the table because we personalize the story that way. But what, what sometimes you can do is you can create this emotion that, well, these people have been abandoned and these people have been left alone and, and you know, um, government needs to do more to help them. You can create that story very easily, but it could be that the people you're talking to have made a lot of choices, too, that have put them in this situation that you don't include in your story. So my only point to that is you just have to be careful about about attempting to go out and, and grab people that you think, again, will frame the story that you already have in your mind. Don't try to go out and, and write a story about what you think. Go out and, and try to find the story that actually exists and tell it as honestly, emotionally, truthfully, whatever, as you possibly can. And that is a perfect segue to number nine on the hit list. Think visual, have vision, word pictures, and don't be afraid to follow the story. That if the story, like you were just saying, if the story takes you in a different direction than what you came in thinking, how do you deal with that? Well, and that's and that I think is maybe the the single hardest thing for <laughs> a lot of journalists. I really do. I I think they struggle with that because especially when you have deadlines the way that you do in yeah. journalism. You know, you've got to turn a certain number of stories, and you, and you have to get certain things done, and so it's, it's this mentality of, I've just got to go out and do this. And so you, you honestly can find yourself writing a story before you have spoken to a single person, you know, because you already know what it's going to say. And I'll tell you this. <laughs> I could write a story right now. If you gave me any subject, I could write a story and go out and find sound bites and interviews and people to say exactly what I want in my head because of how I could frame the question, how I could ask the question in order to get the response. It, it, if you're, once you've done this for a while, it is so easy to do. It just becomes a formula. And that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing when, when so many journalists do that, because I believe a lot of them do. Um, and, and so you're not necessarily pursuing the story. You're pursuing the story that you've already created. And, and that's not journalism. 
I don't believe. I, I liked your point that journalism, and I think there's more than one viewpoint on this. I just happen to agree with the way you were coming down on it personally, uh, that, it, that a, a good journalist is, is working the beginnings of history the best that you can in real time. And probably Shire is a perfect example of that. He was a journalist. He was the journalist I was talking to that had to take all the precautions that we're talking about having to take a, a and I'm sure he never in his wildest dreams ever believed that would be journalists back here in the States having to say the same thing. But again, then he ended up writing a history book that was superb. Um, and that's a tricky part. Do you think he was basically get an advantage because you come at it as a journalist? When I first started as a freelancer, I asked him why my story coming across the threshold actually got read as opposed to the thousand that didn't. And he said, well, it was obviously you, you've written before. You've been a newspaperman. And it's only it's a tiny fraction that, that had done in print media at that time that had actually done any work in in the trenches, on the obit desk, on the on all the things you don't really want to do, but that's what you kind of learn to do the business. What's your what is there a modern journalism equivalent to that? I'm showing my age here. No, I think there can be. I mean, for me personally, I, I started out my career as a news photographer, uh, and and I was a, a photographer and an editor, and so that's how I started out. And I would read uh, many, many different. Um, news stories and news packages and reports every day because I was having to edit them. And so I'd go out with reporters and we'd work and, and I would come back. I would, you know, as a news photographer, one thing I appreciated was the experience of being able to tell a story without words. You're telling a story through pictures, through video, through sounds, through yes. sights, through images. Yes. Um, and obviously, you know, that's a, that's a very powerful uh, medium in this country. But I think it's, it is an incomplete medium in that you know, the National uh, Press Photographers Association, the MPPA, has a saying where they say, you should be able to tell a story without one single word ever having to be spoken. Now, in my opinion, that sounds great, and as a news photographer, I always thought that was great. But I, I've come to the point now where I believe you, you can never actually tell that story because what you, what you lack when you do that is context. There you go. Um, yeah. You can tell, you know, a side of the story – Without ever saying a word, but you cannot tell a full story because because you lack the context. And so for me, you know, the beginning of that was great. I think it helped a lot. Um, and then it's just kind of over the years, it develops out into into these other kind of uh, more defined areas of context. Uh, well, and then then because you came in as a photographer, uh, point number nine, where he says think visual, have vision. Uh, yes. You do tend to think in pictures, I'm sure. Absolutely. As a, as a word herder, I tried to get word pictures. Um, do you have any advice for trying to create word pictures? And, and you still do that even in – it's not just a print thing. It's also TV because we're talking about all of the media here. That's right. That's right. And, and you, want, you want to be able to um, – you know, there are many things that pictures can say and video can say uh, that words cannot. And especially, you know, if you're covering – something like Katrina, if you're covering a hurricane, like uh, a superstorm like Sandy or a hurricane, and you go out and you find people whose lives have been devastated by a natural disaster, pictures are always going to speak maybe to the size and the scope of that situation. We're hearing someone uh, who's talking about what they've lost, someone who's searching through rubble looking for family heirlooms or, you know, even just basic documents, um, you know, there's a lot of emotion and power that comes in that. Um, and so it tells, it tells us one story. That's a way of telling a story uh, from an angle. Uh, and it's done so in a powerful way. But as I said, just be careful about not allowing one story to be all you tell. Um, I, I'm a big believer in people following themes in their work because I think you can become in many ways kind of an expert uh, in, in certain subjects. And so I encourage people to... to Take something they're passionate about and follow that theme so that you learn how, the more you learn, uh, you learn how to tell the story with lots of context in a much shorter amount of time because, because you know it so well. We sometimes use outline in print media. Um, do you guys ever use storyboard for cameras? Because everybody now has a camera in their phone, or a huge percentage. 
a motion picture camera, a still camera, a recorder. They've got all of the media, so it's a, an independent journalist now has to be able to operate in all the media. What about storyboard? Is that something you'd suggest for people to look into? I think it is. Storyboard is a little more for, um, you know, cinematic uh, and commercial type production. We don't use it in broadcast news very much, but I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a great thing. It's it's certainly something that can be done, uh, especially for someone who's getting started, because you need to be able to organize those thoughts. You need to be able to organize the the imagery that you pulled together and, and how to make it most effective. Can you address two? It's something that comes after as many years as you've been doing this. It's almost natural breathing. Uh, it's frustratingly slow for somebody getting started. You feel like you're never going to get, never going to get it together. They make it look so easy in the in the <laughs> in the stories about newspapers. And well, uh, some assembly required and batteries not included. What do you what do you say to people about patience? Yeah, I think that you you have to be patient. Look, when I started my career, um, I was, as I mentioned, a news photographer. And after a certain number of years, I I wanted to move over from the uh, photography side and editing side to the reporting side. And that was a very long road for me, and it was very difficult at times. Um, You know, you're, you're trying to make a transition that very few people ever make, and you're constantly trying to prove yourself. And what I found was, for me, I had to work harder than everybody else twice as long as everybody else. Be the first one in and the last one out. Go out there and, and, and take every crappy assignment that nobody else wanted. <laughs> you know, That's how you get started. And so whether it's as an independent journalist or if you're trying to break into journalism uh, as a career, I, I think you have to look at what am I willing to do to make this happen? Um, how hard am I willing to work without compromising integrity? But how hard are you willing to work and, and what are you willing to do to make it happen? It's not easy. you know. It, it, it's not. But... <laughs> Few things in life that are worth doing are easy. Is it worth doing, Ben? That's what I'd like you to address. You've you've put a pretty good hunk of your life into it now. What's the payoff? What do you sleep well at night? Just what? Why should people be independent journalists here? Uh, because they you know, have a story to tell. Yeah, I, I think for me the payoff has been you know up until a few years ago um, you know. I was continuing to do the typical news type of thing. In 2007, I started covering uh, the Mexican drug war, and I was living down on the border, U.S.-Mexico border, and working for a news station down there, and started going into Mexico and covering it, and and covering that story authentically as to what was really happening, because national media wouldn't talk about the issue on so many levels. Um, I was able to, you know, really pour myself into this reporting, and it meant a lot. It, it meant a lot to be able to tell those stories. And the last few years of my career, you know, moving to Ohio and, and then covering the elections, the 2012 election, and, and now doing reality check, all the stuff that I've done, and having, you know, I literally have um, people in 140 different countries around the world watching the work that I'm doing. Sweet. And it is incredibly meaningful to know that people, when they send you an email, whether it be on Facebook or directly through email, and they say, Thank you for talking about this stuff that no one else will talk about, or thank you for covering this story, or thank you for, for what you said about this. Look, I'll give you a quick example. If you go to my website, benswan.com, that's B-E-N-S-W-A-N-N.com, you can check out a story we did. It's a full disclosure on Syria and al-Qaeda in Syria. And I have had so many people who are either of Syrian descent or who live in Syria right now who have emailed me and said thank you for saying this because we've been trying to tell people this for years and American media won't talk about it. They will not admit that this is what's happening here, and, and you will, and that means something. And I think as a journalist, if you if you really want um, to find meaning in it, you tell the story that other people won't tell. Not just that other people can't tell, but that other people won't tell. That's the story that you want to tell. Got one minute left. Uh, that number point. Ten is integrate the new technology, and I think you really brought that to a head. You started in Ohio as basically a local broadcast, and it was picked up by 140, is that what you said? 140 countries, yep. Uh, that's the new technology. That could have never happened back back in the day. Uh, real quick, what uh, do you think that's what's going to bring us back out of this? Yep. What's your I vision? The Internet changes everything. The Internet is, and, and, and alternative media has the opportunity we have never before in human history had such 
a collision of information and technology and opportunity all at the same time. This is an exciting moment in human history, and I think that we will absolutely not just change the course of this country, but to change the course of the world through this technology. I think it absolutely can happen. Are you optimistic? Do I sound optimistic? <laughs> I'm very optimistic, yes. That's, there, there are so many people, there's so much pessimism right now, and that's if you, every show we bring back again to look up learned helplessness. And basically what you're talking about is empowerment. That's the antidote to learned helplessness. And we are out of time. I, I really think that was a beautiful way to end this. I really have come back and see us again. You've got something coming up on the 26th. On the 26th, I'll be in uh, New Hampshire. We're going to be announcing some great things from New Hampshire about the Truth in Media Project. And uh, folks, go over to my website at binswan.com. You can watch a live stream of it there. We'll be live streaming on the night of the 26th. We will have that link on the page also. So I'll get back in touch with you and make sure that we've got all of our print and uh, hyperlinks to where we need to go. We're out of time. Uh, ben, thank you. Superb job for uh, that had to be pretty strange. <laughs> you were teaching a beginner course in journalism, but I think you did a great job. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. What a great way to, to put this together. I really enjoyed it, Terry. Well, great talking to you. Uh, from Occupy Interview, that's our season kickoff. And hopefully if the server doesn't get knocked out again, number two show will be out in next week. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.